On today's episode, we're talking about leadership and the differences and similarities between corporate America and the world of college athletics. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the 100th episode of Flip the Switch. Never in my wildest dreams did I think we would get to 100 episodes, but the support that all of you have shown us from listening to the episodes and sharing them with your friends, engaging with us on social media, hiring us to help your organizations based on some of the things that you hear us talk about on these episodes, we are so grateful for everything that you do and all the support you've shown us along the way. Now, we are so excited for our guest today, Joe Moglia. And the reason why we're so excited is because we think he's a perfect fit for the 100th episode of Flip the Switch. If you've listened to the show before, you know that what we do on this show is we go out and we try to find the best practices, trends, experiments that are happening outside of sports. And we take those first principles and we apply them back into the world of sports and entertainment so we can help sports properties progress and innovate and get better at the business side of things. Joe's background is perfect for this show because he's had so much success on the football field and in corporate America. Here's what I mean by that. Joe became the CEO of TD Ameritrade back in 2001, and he stepped down in 2008. During that time, shareholders had a 500% return on their investment. Uh, in 2009, he became the chairman of the board, and he became the head coach of, uh, at Coastal Carolina coaching D1 football while being the chairman of the board of TD Ameritrade. Now, TD Ameritrade was uh, acquired by Charles Schwab, but I want to give you some numbers so that you have some perspective of what we're talking about from a business acumen perspective. That combined company, when they combined with Charles Schwab, will be worth about $100 billion when they became acquired, and they had client assets of approximately $5 trillion. When Joe arrived, those numbers were $700 million and $24 billion. So super impressive even when he got there, but the growth that the company enjoyed while Joe was leading the organization was crazy. And when we talk about financial impact, I mean, obviously we're in a different planet than what we're talking about when we sit down with most sports property leaders. So that's Joe's success in the boardroom. But on the football side of the house, he's been a football coach for 25 years and not been a traditional 25 years. So he began his career coaching for 16 then moved over to the business world at TD Ameritrade. Then he went back to coaching. In his last 11 years of coaching college, he's been a part of eight championship teams. And as a head coach, he has a winning percentage of 71%. He's received multiple Coach of the Year honors, including the Eddie Robinson National Coach of the Year Award. He was the recipient of the Vince Lombardi Award. And he's been inducted into the Lombardi Hall of Fame. Again, we are talking about a leader who has excelled both in football and in the boardroom. And a lot of those leadership principles apply no matter how you're thinking about it. Because at the end of the day, in both scenarios, you're leading people. So those principles really carry over to both worlds. In this episode with Joe today, we are going to unpack his leadership philosophy. And we're going to dissect his take on college athletics, where it is right now, the business world, where it is right now, and, and how those things align and cross over. Without further ado, our 100th episode of Flip the Switch with our guest, Joe Moglia. All right, Joe, so you probably have the most unique title in college sports right now, and I am so excited to get into this episode with you. So first of all, thanks for coming on, and we're going to jump into your title here in a second. 
You are the chair of athletics, the executive director for football, and you're the executive advisor to the president of Coastal Carolina. Can you give our listeners just a 30-second overview of what the heck that means and how do you support all these different units? Basically, within the athletic department, I'm the executive director of football, so I'm the one that's ultimately responsible for football. So Jamie Chadwell, our head coach of the football program, reports to me. He's the head coach. He runs it. I'm ultimately responsible for it. I report to the president. We have a new president, uh, Dr. Michael Benson. He's been with us now a little over a year. And uh, as he joined, when he joined the university, he asked me if I would stay on as his executive advisor. It, both of those roles are not full-time roles. Uh, I've got to pay attention to football whenever I need to pay attention to it. If I need to hire a new coach, I got to be on top of that. Uh, the president and I try to get together for dinner every three weeks and we communicate on a regular basis. That's, that's where I do with those two roles. What, when you guys were coming up with that role, I mean, was the goal to kind of take a little bit of the pressure off of the AD? Cause I look at the process of the industry and so much pressure on the AD comes from the success of the football program. So by isolating this, was it, uh, was that kind of the thought process? I mean, how did you guys come up with that? No, I think with my best credible. Yeah. With my background in the business world, when I first got there, uh, whether it's the operations piece, whether it's the financial piece, whether it's the budget. Uh, whatever it might be, I had some pretty good experience in those areas. Like I didn't need help. It's, I didn't need an athletic director, for example, manage my budget. So from the very, very beginning, uh, Dave DeSenzo, our president at the time, said, if I'm coming in, I'm going to run the entire football program. I run it. Now, I can get fired if they don't like what I'm doing or if they don't like the job that I'm doing, but I'm responsible for it, period. So along that line, I never really reported to the athletic director. I reported to the president. Now, there was a change in the athletic department where, uh, where, uh, uh, where our current athletic director, uh, Matt, Matt Hoke, got involved. And with my experience and my background, they asked me if I would share that. That was a few years ago. So that has stemmed from, I'm just worried about football, uh, and Matt takes care of everything else. Beautiful. Well, let's get into some of the things I think that has made you really successful throughout your career. And, and, and one of those is that, you know, as a coach, you kind of had no rules. You just had one standard and that was bam or be a man. And, and now that's evolved to encompass all male and female leaders. But talk us through a little bit about what being a man or bam, what does that actually mean? Um, again, it's, it's not meant to be sexist at all. Think of it a little bit as an acronym for leadership. Uh, I have used this most of my life, both from a personal perspective and a professional perspective, both in the business world, as well as in the world of football. And uh, I also think I wanted something that would differentiate Coast Carolina from every other program in the country. So there were two things we did that nobody else did. The first was we did not have any rules. Now, BAM, while it stands for be a man, remember I got 125, players that are male. I got another 25 coaches, analysts, interns that are male. So I've got 150 guys. So be a man was quite appropriate for our football program, but it's a leadership acronym. Um, I've got three daughters. That's how they were raised. Uh, lady executives that I worked with in the business world, that was their standard. All right. So BAM really means you stand on your own two feet. You take responsibility for yourself. You always treat others with dignity, respect, and you live with the consequences of your actions. That's it. Now, that standard sounds simple, 
And when I just say it like that, it's simple. When you read it, it's simple. But to be able to live up to that standard, and it's not just as a football player, as for who you, as in, who you are as an individual. For our players, for example, it includes their academics. Uh, it includes their relationship with their family. It includes uh, everybody knows who they are. So the behavior performance on campus, as well as off campus, is part of that. You stand on your own two feet and you take responsibility for yourself. You live with the consequences of your action. There are no excuses. There's no make-believe here. You're held to that standard. And part of that standard, you always treat others with dignity and respect. It takes a while to appreciate that. It takes a while to learn it. It takes a while to understand it. But once you do, it really compounds in itself and it builds on itself. And our players and the guys in our program take a lot of pride in the fact that we have this. And they really are the leadership as we get in a new class of prospects. So uh, uh, for, us, for us, it was very much a differentiator. And I tell, tell our recruits and our parents that if you come here and you're not a good football player, that's helpful because we did a poor job of evaluating you. But we made it very clear from the beginning that this was the state you'd have to reach, have to live up to on a regular basis. And if you don't live up to that, then you probably don't want to go to be part of the program. Talk to us a little bit about how you reinforced this, because I, I see a lot of really um, engaging standards like this, and you put them up on the walls and whatnot. But then when you get into the culture of the department, you're like, are you really living by that? And, and you strike me as a guy that, that accountability becomes a really big key thing for you. So how did you hold people accountable realistically to this? Did you incorporate it in performance reviews? I mean, from a business perspective and from a coaching perspective, how did you make sure that these weren't just words on the wall that people were actually living them. How did you hold people accountable? I think, I think, I think, I think for the first thing people really need to recognize is the philosophy upon which our program is built. It's, uh, it's what we do. It's what we believe. Jamie Chadwell, our current head coach, my successor, also has this as part of his program, but he's also added the word believe with that. You got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in your staff. You got to believe in the cultures. But BAM still very much exists. Now, having said that, I think the first thing that's got to be pretty clear, everybody's got to know what the responsibility is. Whether you're a coach, whether you're an administrator, whether you're a technician, whether you're worried about video people, you've got to know exactly what your job is. If you're a player, you've got to know exactly what your job is. Once that's established, then that becomes your responsibility. So we try not to make a big deal about things that don't matter so much. So coaches could be crazy about, like, you got to be there at exactly the right time. Now, if we have a meeting starts at 1 o'clock, and one of our guys shows up at one minute after 1, Frankly, that's not the end of the world. I don't want to make a big deal about that because I'm assuming our guy is man enough to live up to his responsibility. So if he was a bit late, it was because there was something that he couldn't help. He was a bit late, it's no big deal. Now, if that person keeps showing up a bit late, well, he's violating his responsibility in that he's not being respectful to the other people that are there. So his respect and it, it, the, the, the way he treats others then becomes part of that. So, um, so whatever, what I, I think, I think I'm very happy to talk about any example you might want and how the bad thing actually applies. Just think, what is your responsibility? Did you live up to that responsibility? If you did great, there'll be positive consequences. If you didn't, there'll be consequences as well. Not so positive, but there'll be consequences. That's it. That's all you got to know. But that deals with everything you've got going on pretty much in your life, especially when you treat out treat out with dignity and respect. Give us an example on the coaching side where this really kind of came to life, where somebody's BAM was there, it, that standard was implemented, and they really saw this and they said, hey, you know what, 
this exists, this happened, and now I've got to make adjustments because like, can you, are there any specific examples that you can think of where BAM I, I can really give, made I, an impact? I'm sure I can give you many. I've got a very, very significant one that I think I'll probably save it later. But one very simple one, uh, uh, now we have a strength coach and strength coach is responsible for making sure our guys are stretched right, you know, the, the, uh, that, that they're healthy from a physiological perspective, whether it's nutrition or weights or conditioning or whatever it might be. Now, if I'm a position coach, if I'm the wide receiver coach, this actually happened with us, if I'm the wide receiver coach, well, I'm also responsible for my wide receivers, period. That's my responsibility. So if they're not doing a good job in the weight room, well, that's my responsibility. Now, it's also the strength coach's responsibility. But they're my guys. If my guy is not doing a good job in the classroom, that's my responsibility. If he's, if he's got issue at home or issue with his girlfriend that's creating a problem, I, I should, he should know that. All right? So the example would be uh, at the end of, I think it was 2013, it was my second year, and we were looking at all the final stats with regards to our guys, their strength, their speed, et cetera. And the wide receivers showed very little improvement strength life from the previous year. So I asked the wide receiver coach on what the problem was. He said, well, that's the strength coach. I did not respond well to that because we've been together two years by that. I said, the strength coach, I said, who's responsible for wide receivers? So well, I am. Well, then, then don't tell me about the strength coach. And the, so you're being responsible. So if you see a guy maybe not doing his job, you talk to the guy, you talk to the strength coach, but in fact, you have a check and balance there. So you've got two people in effect that are responsible, but the person responsible is the strength coach. I'm sorry, is the, is the wide receiver coach. And once he said, well, that's the strength, strength guy's responsibility, he lets himself subconsciously off the hook. I'll give you one more quick example. I don't want my guys yelling at referees, right? And the reason for that is we spend a lot of time, take a lot of pride. We're one of the best in the country in terms of fewest penalties. That's because we emphasize it. We know how to coach it. We know how to do it. We've got better discipline than most programs do. So the player is responsible for not committing a penalty. Because, and he's supposed to know that very, very clearly. Now, let's keep using the wide receivers. Well, the wide receiver coach is responsible for his guys not committing a penalty. So in a game, if there's a call and a flag is thrown and the wide receiver coach doesn't like it, a typical coach starts yelling at the officials, a bad call. I don't want my guy to do that because maybe it is a bad call. But once he does that, first of all, the players hear it. So then right away, the players say, okay, that's not my fault. It's the official's fault. It's a bad call. The coach, really, you subconsciously let yourself off the hook. You can never do that. You are always on the hook. You are always responsible. So those are two very, very simple examples. And, you know, frankly, we can go on. And it, you can take this anywhere you want to, and you can see how BAM works. Well, well my brain is in 100, 100 miles an hour right now connecting it to the business world because that happens for us in, in the front office of an athletic department or a pro sports team or in any other business as well, where it's there are multiple people working on a project at once. And just because there's multiple people working on it doesn't mean you get to throw your hands up and say, well, that's Susie's job or that's, that's Joe's job. That's David's job, right? It's a, you're responsible for it and, and you've got to take accountability of that. And if you can have some influence over it, you've got to own it. Right. And I, I think that probably carried you really well when you went over to TD Ameritrade, uh, outside of your, your, your college football time. Uh, and because this, this really applies both to the business world and, uh, to the football world. For me. It's been the basis upon which I've lived my personal life. I lived my coaching life and I lived my business life uh, for five decades. So I, it's not something I think works. It's something that I know works 
and it's never been over five decades. I've not found yet an area where that principle doesn't work if it's executed well. So if you've got, back to your point, Dave, if you've got a group of people working on a project, that's great. But somebody's got to be responsible for that project. If there's nobody responsible for the project, then who's ever ultimately responsible is making a mistake. You've got to have responsibility. So somebody's got to be responsible. And then the individual people that are part of it, yeah, you could be brainstorming, you bring your ideas, you do all those things, but they should also know what their individual responsibilities would be. And you, everybody that is accountable for that, everybody. Understanding the individual responsibilities piece is, is, is really key. And I, I think for us, part of that comes into as well as incentives, right? Like how are people actually incentivized around their different responsibilities? And I, I'm, I'm going to use this as a kind of transition point because there's a, an article that you recently wrote for Forbes that I want to touch on. Uh, we're talking, talking about providing the right incentives for the right players based on their performance and their potential. Um, but I think about it as, you know, one of the challenges that we're seeing in the college athletics world right now is this struggle to provide some of the desired incentives, you know, whether it's title change or salary raises, at whatever it might be. And I think that's impacting a lot of good people ending up leaving the college athletics industry. So from your perspective, right, what are some of the other incentives that college athletics really could offer to staff to help them stay and grow and for us to keep top talent in the industry? I think first you've got to be reasonably competitive relative to what's going on. So I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, the University of Georgia has a $12 million budget. They actually spent $12 million last year for recruiting. Our budget for recruiting is $400,000. Now, it's difficult to be able to compete at that level, but that's what we've got. That's what we have at our place. So we've got to be able to maximize our potential with what we have. Now, if $400,000 is an issue, then we got to figure out a way to run a race. We got to figure that out. Uh, so uh, you want to be able to try to provide as best you can a competitive environment for whom you're going to compete with and how you're going to get evaluated. I know I think an individual's title does matter. I think getting promoted to uh, a coordinator or getting promoted to assistant head coach or associate head coach or a deputy coordinator, I think all those things do matter. Um, I think if you think from a player's perspective, you know, just by doing your job, we increase the probability of going to win. The win in itself should be a reward. If you're a good player and you're doing the job the way you're supposed to, you're going to be rewarded and noted as, and, and, and people become aware of you as, as a really, really good player. Uh, in the business world, it's a matter also of title. It's a matter of position. Title doesn't mean as much as responsibility. The title helps. So give somebody a title and there's also a compensation level. In the business world, for me, since it was always Wall Street, uh, the bonus is what really, truly did matter. And I, if you really did your job, I would want to differentiate bonuses from person to person. If you really did your job, I want to surprise you on the upside. If you didn't, I was, I was going to hurt you, but you would know that. You would know that your bonus would be penalized because you didn't do the job you should do. And by the way, that's something that's communicated every day. So if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, it's my job to make sure you're moving in the right direction. I don't wait for performance review. I don't need a performance review. That happens on a very, very regular basis. So there's constant communication like that. Yeah, and I, I think the constant communication is, is, is massive. Something that you hit on is that I, that I want to touch on just for a second is on the business side of things, you mentioned titles probably not as much important. Responsibility is really important. So I, I think for us in the college athletic space, I mean, think about the front office side of things. I mean, how, how might we be able to create some more creative opportunities to give more responsibility or um, give some other types of incentives that maybe we haven't thought about traditionally to really make sure that we're retaining top staff? 
if you, I think we need an example here, Dave. And so why don't we look at, let's say, marketing and sales. So uh, their job is to, to fill seats, right? So if your state involves 20,000 people and you're only drawing 10,000 people, and in a place like South Carolina, you know, what I've heard is the very, very beginning, was, oh, you know what, South, uh, the University of South Carolina was playing that day. Well, Clemson was playing that day. I don't, once you say that, what are you doing? You're letting yourself subconsciously off the hook. You have an excuse. There's some reason why you're not getting your job done. That is not acceptable. That is not okay. So how can we make sure that you have whatever tools you need to be able to get the job done? Are you being creative? Are you thinking outside the box? What ideas have you tried that work? If they didn't work, why didn't they work? What ideas have you tried that, that do work? Can we spend a little bit more time? Can we invest in those? Can we spend more time in those? Uh, and as people do a good job, I think they could be rewarded with an additional title. They could be rewarded with, uh, uh, you know, perhaps maybe a, an increase in the compensation as far as later on in the year. Uh, if bonuses are paid, if football staff wants to do a good job and some bonuses are paid, perhaps some of that thing could be devoted to the people in marketing sales and help it fill the stadium. Huge. So, uh, so that, that, that we just a simple example, but I, you get back to, this is your job and this is your responsibility. Do, that's it. You get that job done. Now, everything around that then becomes the titles, becomes the pats on the back, becomes uh, what the compensation le level might be. And I found over you know, my five decades, whether it's football or the business world, everybody wants to feel appreciated. And sometimes it's simply a matter of saying, you're doing a great job. I'm proud of you. Keep it up. So people need to feel that. But again, I'm getting back to there is no excuse for why you're not, why you're not ultimately filling the stadium. You come up with well, the weather's bad. Okay. You've got to solve for those problems. Otherwise, again, you let yourself fall for hook. I totally, totally agree. I love, I love that thought uh, around appreciation, but then also responsibility and balancing those two things. Um, well, let's talk about college athletics as a, a business and an industry as a whole. Um, you know, from the outside, right, college athletics is truly big business. But for those of us on the inside, we know that sometimes it doesn't operate quite as efficiently as a corporate organization might. And while there's red tape in both worlds, I think that you and I both having experience on the Fortune 500 side can say there's probably a little bit more um, less efficiency, let's call it, in the college athletic side of things and the university side of things. So setting aside some of the challenges like NIL and transfer portal, what do you see some of the biggest operational challenges facing college athletics and what should we make? What are some of those changes that we should make short term? If we, you had a magic wand. Dave, Dave, you know, you said setting aside the NIL thing in the port. The reality is over the last year or so, that has become the most significant single challenge. I think in the history of college athletics. Let's talk I about it. it. Okay. So, um, you know, several years ago, uh, the portal was introduced and that allowed a player that wanted to go to another school, wasn't happy where it was, to put his name on the portal and he could be recruited by other schools. Now, coaches hated that because they were no longer in control the way they had been in the past. I didn't like it initially either. After just literally a week or two, I thought about it and said, you know, if a kid really doesn't want to be here or he doesn't like where he's being treated or thinks he should be playing or he's not happy in school for social media, whatever the reasons are, happy. why wouldn't make sure he has the opportunity to go someplace else where he'd be happier, you know, fulfill his own potential. Why should a coach impede that? So I got to the point where I started to praise that and I thought it was a good thing. All right. Then 
this has been talked for a long time about, you know, to what extent you're going to want to pay the players. And also about five, six years ago, the NCAA came up with some called, called cost of attendance. So pretty much every Division one player probably gets another $5,000 or so. It's like spending money. Now, again, see where the money goes and you can predict almost what happens. You can predict that the players are going to get money somewhere, somehow. Since then, they've been talking about, you know, why can't they get money for their image? Why can't they get money for the name? Why if they bring it in? Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example with the, uh, the five power conferences. That's why they have so much money. With the contracts they have with television, for football alone, I would bet you the average team, doesn't matter if it's Rutgers or Ohio State, the average, the, the average compensation, annual check, uh, it varies each year. For football, it's probably close to $65 million just for football to one school. Now, the group of five schools don't necessarily get that. All right. So when you just look at that amount of money, eventually, eventually, there's going to have to be some sort of uh, a, a agreement where some of that gets moved to the people that are generating those revenues. All right. Uh, the NCAA never got involved with that. In the meantime, lawyers were agents where everybody else was. Then all of a sudden, after about a five-year period, NIL is passed. Now, the, the, there are no rules. There's no regulations. There's nothing associated with this. So uh, each state can decide how they want to handle it. Each league can decide how they want to handle it. Within those uh, guidelines, each school can decide what they want, how they want to handle it. If you are a wealthy school from a football perspective, have very well-to-do alumni that really want to help their program, there's no reason why you can't. I, I bet today, today, right now, there are at least a dozen football players at the visual level that they're getting a million dollars a year. And that's just going to, that's just going to increase from here. Uh, so the NCAA took no role in this. And then when uh, that actually happened they went to the Supreme Court said, you know, well, we're losing amateurism. Well, yeah, you definitely lost amateurism. That's God. So, but you didn't do anything about this. And the Supreme Court voted them down 9-0. Then on top of that, with the portal, now the one thing about the portal is if you put yourself in a portal and you decide to go someplace else over another school is recruiting you, you have to sit out a year. So it's a serious decision, both on the part of the school and on the part of the player, if he's going to go to another school, because he's got to sit out a year. And that's kind of the price you got to pay for that. The NCAA decides to get rid of the transfer rule. Now, what that means is Anybody in college sports, a simple football, anybody in college football today that chooses to, assume he's a pretty good player, put his name up on the portal, and there are name, image, or likeness deals that would happen with businesses or connected with the school, around the school, technically not the school, but you can figure out how that works. Uh, and one of the schools said, oh, we really need a quarterback. He's a good quarterback. We're thinking, by the way, we're going to be able to give you an NIL deal, you know, through our local, uh, uh, our local automobile dealer, you know, for $250,000. Now I'm telling the other schools, I said, I got an NIL deal for $250,000. Now, if I am a school that gets that much money, has that much revenue associated with football, and I really need a quarterback, and a quarterback can make or break my season, I can see where that kid gets over a million dollars. So let's put it in perspective. The NFL has contracts for the players. They can trade the player. They can tear up the contract despite a new one. They can extend the contract or they can let it go. And at the end of which, the player becomes a free, free agent. That's the NFL. That's professional sports. In college sports today, you go to a school. You used to go to school and commit to go in there for four years or five years. Uh, 
And now, anytime you feel like, anytime you put your name up on the portal and somebody in effect can buy you, so it becomes an auction. Every day, every player is a free agent. Now, that's not the way to run a business, and that's certainly not the way to, to run a university. So this is going to get out of hand. And I know I'm rambling a little bit, but this is a oh, huge topic. 30, 40 years ago, the NCAA did a good job of shutting down booster involvement. They, 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 they minimize it. They try to get rid of it. You know, there were, there were schools that got the death penalty, SMU and others. And now again, they overdid it. And they had a lot of like silly little rules that didn't matter, but they did a pretty good job of, of regulating that. That's gone now. We're going to be able to go back to exactly where we were 30, 40 years ago, but now it's legal. You're not cheating. It's legal to do all these things. And there's no transfer rule. This is, this is a joke. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. Now, if I'm a player and I'm pretty good and I can go to some other school, someone's going to give me a $250,000 deal for showing up on Thursday to sign autographs for an hour. Now, I can see where that's in the best interest yeah. of that particular person. I can see that. But getting rid of the transfer rule is a horrible, horrible decision. And if the NIL wanted to, if the, if the NCAA wanted to be involved with this, they should have been involved with this. So when it did roll out, there was at least some guidelines, regulations, rules, uh, standards, et cetera. There's none of that. Totally. And I, I look, from an intent perspective, transfer portal somewhat makes sense, right? My, my little brother actually transferred from University of Cincinnati to Coastal Carolina to play soccer yeah. for a year. It was after his, uh, he graduated from UC and did some grad school at, at Coastal Carolina. I understand the intent of it, but you're right. I mean, to take your hands off the wheel and just say, ah, we'll let it happen how it happens is, is in my mind, really... Um, it really naive and really almost irresponsible. I mean, think about it from your time at, at TD Ameritrade. Could you guys imagine like just saying that the 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 policymakers and whatnot coming down with rules and stuff and you guys not being involved in those conversations, you're not wanting to have the, part of those conversations to just take your hands off the wheel and say, oh no, like we don't want any part of it. Like that's, that's, would never happen. So anyway, it's just, go ahead. I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I agree. It wouldn't be anything that, again, Bam, what's your responsibility? I'm responsible for this section of my business that's going to be influenced by something going on in Washington. I want to be heard. I, I want to have input. Now, right. if, I can't, if I can't affect that because I don't have responsibilities going on in Washington, right. I'm responsible for my organization, well, then I got to be able to adapt and adjust my organization as fast as possible to what the new world's going to be. I can't sit there and complain about it. I've got to adapt and, adjust, adapt and adjust by it. Well, let's think. I'm adapting that, right? So knowing what we have today with the rules in place that we have today, if you could build an athletic department from scratch today, blank canvas, knowing that we have the rules that we have in place right now, what are some of the rules that you might over-index on? How might you structure it differently than some of these legacy athletic departments are structured? I think why do you assume for a minute that anybody who hires is going to have the skill set to do the job that you need and everybody hires is going to be honest and everybody hires is going to be a team player. Everybody says that. Okay. But again, if you're going to do, if you're going to excel, you're going to maximize your potential, you've got to differentiate from others. So the first thing and I told you at the beginning, uh, I told you at the beginning of our podcast that you'd be hearing me bring up BAM again and again, because it is, it is a foundational in terms of what we have and what's going on. Uh, and again, it doesn't matter the field, it doesn't matter the area. So I would begin by uh, the discussion of BAM and whether it's a lady, whether it's a man, say, this is our leadership principles. We're expecting you to stand on your own two feet, take responsibility for yourself, treat others with dignity and respect, live the consequences of your action. That means no excuses. Then I would come up with a couple of examples that would happen over the span of the year. 
and ask them how they would handle that. I said, well, bam, you would have handled that way. You'd have to handle this way because you're letting yourself off the hook because you're saying, well, that's not my job. Somebody else says, no, it's your job. Uh, so I begin with that. Uh, the second thing, I, 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 would, I would really want a genuine, genuine effort. Now, we're all going to do what we believe is in our best interest. That's capitalism. It's a good system. We're all going to do that. But you've got to get somebody that and you help make it this way where it's in his best interest to do the right job for the organization, the right job for a school, the right, right job. So it's in his best interest or her best interest to do something like that. I want to make sure they get that. There's a balance between what's good for you and what's good for the university and what's good for the university with regard to your job is what your job is. And you've got to do that in that light. So it's not just about you. It's about your responsibility with regard, your commitment, frankly, to department or to, to the university. The other thing that I, that I would do, and I would feel very, very strongly about this, uh, most of the people that you'd hire, that you've done a little work on, uh, uh, you know, are fine. Most of them are good. But it's how they handle themselves under stress. It's how they handle themselves when they only have 25% capacity in the stadium and expected to have 90%. It's the way you handle a team when, you know, they're not, not 10 and 0, they're 2 and 8. They got everybody injured. So how do you handle yourself under severe stress? That person will differentiate themselves and perform better than somebody else. Says, I want to find that out. I'll, I, I want to find that out. And then finally, uh, most people hire somebody because they go through a search firm. The search firm wants to go through the list. They bring in a handful of people. That's it. The jobs are too important to just let the search firm do that. And you yourself have to do real due diligence in this person. You've got to do it, but you've got to have your team do it, but not the search firm, right? So if I'm going to bring in, again, stick with the marketing salesperson, that marketing salesperson used to work at, I'm making it up a little bit, Georgetown. Well, I know they worked with some people at Georgetown, and I know they had to have vendors that they work with as well. I'm going to reach out to them. And as anybody that I know at Georgetown, I'm going to ask them, you know, what do you know about Sam or Sally, whomever it might be? So the differentiation is man. And understand that you truly do work for a, a bigger, a bigger institution than just the athletic right. department. Uh, your ability to be able to hand, handle yourself under stress and true due diligence on the part of the person that's responsible for that department with regard to the people. That's why I would handle it. That's great insight for building a team and, and how we think about that. What about from like an organizational design standpoint, specific roles or titles that, you know, maybe that you were exposed to on the business side of things that you feel like could be implemented more in the college athletic space? Well, I think I go back to the title is not as important as the responsibility. So people respond to time yeah. getting the title right, right? And you got to get the responsibility right. Once you get the responsibility right, and you've got any mind whatsoever, a little teeny weeny bit of creativity, you can come up with a title. The ones that make any sense. So, uh, the um, if if you think about uh, think about um, you've got a background with Disney, and yep. when I think about you know the mission of a typical company is that we want to be the the best firm of choice for the, our customers. That's what everybody says. Disney, yep. if I remember correctly, said we want to make make dreams. We want to fulfill. We want to make make people's dreams come true. We create that's, happiness by providing yeah. the finest in entertainment for people. Right. Oh, that, that's aspirational. And it's not about you. It's about your clients. That's going to benefit your business. That's going to benefit you. Now, if you stand back from that, can you not come up with a whole school of creative titles for any of the people that are involved with that organization and with that project to be, to be able to uh, uh, help better describe what their functionality is? 
I, I think competing with Tyler is not really not that difficult. It really, really is. Uh, well, uh, and, and again, the emphasis is on responsibility, not the title. So how, how about like specific skill sets? Maybe that's the better question I should be asking. New skill sets that should be involved in the athletic department of today that might be different from what it was 10 years ago. Well, I think besides the skill set of having yourself well under the pressure, uh, yeah. Besides, uh, besides, besides that, and besides the band, okay. If you got those, you're in pretty good shape. But I think other. Remember, I said we got to assume we're going to hire the person that got the skill sets to, to to do the job. If we want to differentiate, um, and at the end of the day, I think most of our athletic directors across the country, very smart guys, out his, uh, very very smart guys, but they're still part of the academic world. They don't necessarily presidents the same. Very smart, scholarly, but most, there were some very real exceptions to this, but most don't truly understand risk reward, but they, they could not even imagine me saying that and they agree with this, but I can see that very clearly and objectively. They don't necessarily understand risk reward and they don't make real tough business decisions. Sometimes, for example, in the role of a president, you worry a little bit too much about the faculty is going to say because the faculty's thing. Now, you don't care about the faculty. If you're worried too much but trying to please everybody, you're not going to get your job done and you're going to wind up with mediocrity. So I'm going to look for somebody that has the guts and the courage to make the decisions they believe are the right decisions for their institution. So a little bit more perhaps of a business understanding and a little bit more of an understanding like, okay, well, this is not allowed. So how do I get a doc? As opposed to, well, we can't do that because this, you know, because you can't do it because you can't do it that way. Well, is there a way I can do this? I want a pot. I don't want a reason why I can't do something. I want to figure out how I can do something and I'm looking for those types of skill sets. So maybe that comes a little bit with a business background. I think or maybe comes with a little bit more of a liberal arts background. But what it comes with, it's banned. You're not going to make excuses for yourself. Otherwise, it comes with somebody who's got more of an open mind. Yeah, I, I think BAM is a huge way to get around that. I, I think the other thing that becomes challenging that we see in college athletics is like, and we touched on this already, so we don't have to go into it, but from an incentives perspective is because it's a lot of state institutions sometimes where you can't give some of those bonuses, you can't give some of those other incentives that you find, getting told no and trying to find that obstacle away round that we might do in corporate America doesn't exist as much in college athletics because it's like, eh, well, why should I push harder? If I'm going to get paid the same, no matter what, whether I come home, whether I really push and knock on those doors and I knock them down or whether I don't, it's going to be the same. Uh, which is why I think BAM is really important that you recruit for people and test for people that have that kind of BAM in them and that they're doing it for intrinsic motivations, not extrinsic motivations. Well, I think you make a great point, Dave. You don't hire that person, right? If you're beginning with BAM, that person doesn't get hired because he or she recognizes from the very, very beginning, they're going to be held responsible. So they're going to say, well, uh, why should I work hard? Well, then you're not getting your job done. You're going to get fired. You're not supposed to be here. Now, just think in terms of, you keep, talking, keep going back to the reward idea. All right, I'm on campus, okay? And I have an athletic director. And again, my marketing sales team to keep it consistent. And they start to do a good job. Well, I think I can get them written up in the school newspaper. I think I can, you know, when we have some sort of rally, you know, make sure the football coach says, says thank you to so-and-so in front of 2,000 people. Uh, you can get them introduced at halftime of a game. I mean, but bottom line is you can, uh, you know, Put put something special in that particular office. Maybe you give them a bigger office. Maybe you change their title to senior, <laughs> senior advisor. I said, well, you just advisor. Uh, you can always add to an executive or a deputy title in there somewhere. So it's your job as the leader 
to make sure you find ways for people to feel good about what they're doing for your institution. But they got to be the type of people that want to go after it because they're not willing not to give it their best shot. Love it. Well, let's jump into like this broader leadership topic. Um, and this is something that has come up for us multiple times as, as we're doing work with different clients. And sometimes we hear about managers leading the way that they work best instead of leading what's going to work best, leading in the way that's going to work best for their team. Um, and, and when I think about that, I know you used to test players to figure out how they learned best. And was that the same way that you led your business teams? I mean, talk about that a little bit. The answer is yes. So, um, so one of the responsibilities as a coach, a teacher, or whomever, administrator, is you've got to be able to communicate. Now, communication is a two-way street. So if you are talking to me about some principle of philosophy, whatever it might be, and I'm nodding my head, you probably just assume that you got your point across, but you don't know that. So you need to find that out. So you need to start asking some questions about the topic or not just have me memorize it, come back to you. And don't ask me yes or no questions. Ask me the type of question that I'm going to have to demonstrate to you that I understand this. So coaching. So the role of a coach, yeah, I'm a linebacker coach and I've got to be able to teach a simple pass, a pass coach concept. So if the halfback, I won't get too technical. Halfback wants them going outside and the tight end goes inside. Okay. All right. There, there, there's a cross there. So I was only going to cover the linebacker, but what's that? Uh, I'm sorry. I was normally going to cover the tight end, but once the tight end went inside and the back went outside, now I got the other guy. Now that's not that hard, but the player's got to make that decision. In a fraction of a second when ball snap. And we had one of our best players, and this is my first year, one of our best players, uh, say he can't make it the same mistake. He wasn't getting it. So I asked that linebacker coach to explain it to me. It took him five minutes. And I know what the answer is. It took him five minutes to explain to me. And I said, if it takes you five minutes to explain to me, and I'm still not quite sure what you're telling me, that there's no way that that guy's got it down. What's the proof of the pudding? He's not doing his job right. You think he intentionally doesn't want to do his job right? So it's your responsibility to make sure he's doing his job right. Instead, the coach, again, it's my first year, the coach will say, well, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Now you're blaming it on him. All right. So if you understand that, now you go back to, to the business world. And in the business world, I'm saying, you know, my, man, my management team, the executive team, we're talking around the table, you know, and I'm talking. And I get everybody nodding their head. But I know these two guys better understanding that they're going to be responsible for it. I've got to find out whether or not they understand it because it's there. It's my job to make sure they do understand it. And remember, bam, it's also their job to make sure they understand. So if they're dying their head and they don't quite understand, that's not acceptable. So, so we start doing a particular project and three months down the road, it's not working well. And they start explaining why it's not working well. Then it was a solution to that problem. But if they explain to me why it's not working well and I, that kind of violates the understanding that we had three months before that. I recognized right away that I did a poor job of explaining to them their job because they didn't get it. All right. So there are different ways people learn. So 99% of us learn visually, auditorially, or kinesthetically. So we hear, we see it, or kind of some sort of feel. And uh, so it's called the back test, DAK, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. And it's a pretty simple test. You're taking about 15, 20 minutes. But that test then tells you what your dominant learning style is. So I'm dominantly, let's say, a visual learner. Uh, another guy is dominant, let's say, kinesthetic learner. So how does that work? I thought about that when my staff was tested as well in football. And uh, most of them were, were visual learners. 
And I found I was spending too much time in my meeting talking. So I started to go from there. I started to have more notes. I started to draw more visuals. I put some more film up there. Just because I knew they learned better visually. Uh, if I'm an offensive tackle and the coach is talking to me and show and a kinesthetic learner and the coach is talking to me and showing me Phil, well, he's giving me visual and auditory, but I'm kinesthetic. I know I'm kinesthetic. I expect the coach to say, well, he's got to know the guy's kinesthetic because that's his job. The kid knows he's kinesthetic because we told him it's his job to make sure he understands. It's the coach's job to make sure he understands. So the player helps a lot by raising his coach to be fair. And uh, would you do, go through that again with me? But instead of talking to me, show me the film, walk through the actual steps with me. So that really genuinely matters. I really learned that, I think, in the business world uh, where uh, you know, people are smart and Wall Street, they get big bonuses. But that doesn't mean they're communicating clearly. And almost everybody communicates in a way where people are nodding their head saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I say, but, well, and that also means the person, the leader, is not taking responsibility for making sure. He says, I went over that five times. That's irrelevant to me. What's relevant is whether or not the person understands. It's your job to make sure he does. It's the person's job to also make sure he understands. So again, within BAMI, the constant system of checks and balances. Yeah, I ramble too much. No, 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 no. This is this is good, and I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a little bit deeper here too. Is I think as a leader in the on the business side, it's a little harder because I th- I feel like as a coach, it's really obvious to tell when your player is missing the coverage because you're gonna get you're gonna tell them something and you're gonna get out there the next play and you're gonna go do it right. But I think on the business side, I, I, I'm on a mission, right? How do we prevent that? How do we prevent it from finding out that the guy didn't get it three months later? How, what were some of the signals that you used as a leader to pick up on? whether or not the person was just nodding their head along saying, yeah, I get it, or whether they really got it. What were some of those signals that you looked for? I had eight people, let's say, in the room with me, and one person was ultimately going to be responsible. I would then, after the meeting, or the next day or so, I would call a person in, and I would, oh, it's at that meeting, actually, I would say, I like a plan now. You know, kind of, what would your plan be? Give me a good outline. I don't need every detail. I knew every I dot and every T crossed. I just need, watch your plan as to how you're going to do this. I want that like in 24, 48 hours. The reason why I want it right away, and it doesn't have to be that comprehensive, is that's going to automatically give me a feel for whether or not he understands that we're on the same page. I can see from his original thought process whether or not he gets it. So if he doesn't get it, I can correct that immediately. I'd fit to me, then I'm going to ask him again for another plan. And at some point, either he's not able to give me the plan, or I can't communicate with him, or I got to somebody else to do it, or he's going to give me the right plan on the same page. Then we go and now we monitor our progress. That's the way I would do that. And that, by the way, works consistently. You ask somebody to give you a plan for what's supposed to happen, quickly get the, they don't need 12 people working on it. How would you handle this? How would you rule it out? What's your vision? What's your philosophy? I didn't think you're going to begin. You know, immediately whether or not they get it. It's such a good strategy. And I think oftentimes, I mean, we're, we're deep in a lot of different athletic departments. We'll get out of meetings. And I'll see that happening where people are just nodding their heads. I'm like, that, nothing's going to happen there. We think that there's, we think that it's been assigned, but I know nothing's going to happen there. And because we move on to the next thing, we got dirty sports and all the things you move on and, and you look down the road and you're like, well, we talked about in that meeting, it's six months from now, whatever happened with that. And it's because, you know, there wasn't really a, a plan attached to it. And you've, and you've lost, and you've lost six months, you lost six months. The, the other thing in our life department, I to use that, that example, you got 30 sports. Well, the reality is you cannot treat all three sports the same. And every coach knows that. Every coach is going to act, act and they want to be treated similarly, but every coach knows that. And 
you've got to be able to prioritize what you're going to do, what you're going to accomplish. You've got to prioritize. Otherwise, uh, you're treating too many things equal. So, uh, so within, so, so within, let's say a game plan, offensively, defensively, and I'll sit down with the offensive coaches after they studied the, the opponent. I said, okay, what is it we have to stop? If they're talking too long, it's not acceptable because they're not going to be able to really be outstandingly well-prepared for that too much. So what are the three or four things we've got to stop and then how we're going to stop it? And the other thing, we'll do a great job of reacting to it. And we'll spend some time on it, but we're going to get those three things right. If we're going to get those three right, we're going to lose this game. Well, as an athletic administrator, if I don't get whatever concept we're working on, if I don't get that right, go back to putting people in seats. If I don't get that right, well, then that's on me. I'm ultimately more responsible for that. So I better have the right person who's going to take responsibility for it and have enough creativity to be able to get it done. But I'm not going to be able to, uh, I can't sit there and hear one excuse after the other, why it's not working. Then I've got the wrong person. That, I mean, that had to be, and that had to be the same thing for you at TD Ameritrade too, where there's no shortage of things that you guys could work on and, and prioritize. But ultimately you had to have the plan of, okay, what are our top three things that we're going to tackle and let's go after it, And the rest of it we'll tackle when mm -hmm. we're done, right? Like I, I got to imagine the same, some of the same processes. hundred percent, Dave. Give me an example. Uh, so where I began, I made it very clear to all our employees and executive management team, everybody that there's only three things that matter. Three things. That's it. One is, uh, our clients. If we don't do a good job taking care of our clients, we don't have a business. So we have to prioritize them, but we also run a business. So in order, in order to take care of our clients and we just do everything they want, we're just going to go out of business. So that doesn't work. So we've got to take care of our show. So again, balance the, the business returns with being able to take care of your clients, you got to balance those in a way that in a way that just works for the business and works for the client. Uh, and the, the value to each of those constituents are delivered through your employees who we call associates through our associates. So those three things we got to get. All right. So my first couple uh, months at Meritrade, again, I make this clear to everybody. Every time I talk, I go, go through those three things. Uh, and somebody would be talking, you know, for 45 minutes about something. And at the end of that, I was saying, okay, walk me through how that, either helps our client. And then they got, they don't know where to go. I said, well, it sounds smart. It sounds brilliant. And I don't say it's going to help our client. It's not going to help my client. It's ultimately not going to help our profitability. Now, if you come in and say, uh, no, I, I'm the technology and I can improve our efficiency in operations. Well, I think if we're going to be more efficient, we're going to have fewer mistakes. I find you're going, going to have better reports. All those things are good. And that also saves us money. They're going to help our bottom line. Uh, but if, if you're spending too much time on whatever you're spending time in, and it doesn't impact those three, uh, the, 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 those, those three, uh, three groups, uh, you're not doing your job. So as time went on, I became impatient. So if someone started to go five minutes and I didn't see where he was going, I'd stop him and say, I'm assuming you're going to tell me where this helps the client, how this is going to help our profitability, or how's this going to help our people, you know, feel more appreciated, do their job or whatever it might be. But, uh, uh, the, the hardest thing for me to do is change habits, really kind of change things. So you do that by prioritizing. And then again, it's your job. You stay on top of it. You know, if it's important enough, you don't, you don't, you don't get away from that. That's why in the beginning, they said, a kid comes in one minute late for a meeting. And coaches are screaming, Hans got to run after school, blah, 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 or we're at the practice. Okay, if that happens once and, and he's doing all the job that he's supposed to do, that's no big deal. It's, it's, it's irrelevant. Now, what a typical coach will argue with me and say, I don't get it. I don't get it. 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've been away from the game too long. I just don't get it. Uh, well, I do get it. And don't make a big deal about stuff that doesn't matter. I get if he's being disrespectful to his teammates because he's showing up late to the coach. Well, that's not okay. That's being disrespectful. That's an issue. So the coach should have to talk to him about that. But that's, but that's not, that he's, that I would expect the kid is brought up to BAM to improve that very, very quick. Love it. Um, all right, last couple of questions here as we bring it home. Uh, I, I got to ask this. I mean, obviously, you've probably worked for some really great leaders and, and had some great mentors in your life. Who, who are one or, or two of your favorite leaders that you've ever worked for, mentors that you've had? And what were some of their elements of their leadership style that you incorporated into your own? I think, you know, when I first moved to the executive management, the guy that ran the fixing up division that I was part of, it was Roger Bates. And you know, we're still great friends today. And, uh, Number one, he definitely cared about the people. Uh, he really felt that. And number two, he was very, very conscious of what our risk tolerances were. So how much can we afford to lose on a particular trade, a particular department, et cetera? If I had, I also left from him, he was so detailed, we weren't good enough to prioritize the things we had to prioritize. So I learned those two things from him. I, I got to do a much better job of understanding what my risk is. And I certainly got to pay attention to my associates. Uh, but at the end of the day, I got to focus on what our priorities are, not 25 things on a list, the top three or four things on the list. Then I worked for a gentleman who became president of Merrill Lynch, Herb Allison, who passed a while ago. Uh, and he, he was just, he was incredibly consistent and clear in his explanation so people did understand it. Uh, and he held you accountable. He just held you accountable. Those were things I already believed in. That should reinforce that for me. And then Dave Kamansky, who became our CEO, the dad Tully was a CEO. I learned from each of those. And those last two gentlemen, Allison and Kamansky and Tully, have all passed. But I certainly was able to learn and benefit from them. I think in the world of uh, in the world of of athletic, or academics, uh, like my, my more recent life, at least, you know, I think that the president that hired me, David Desenzo, and the current president we have, uh, Michael Benson, I think they are. I've just been able, first, I'm appreciative of the fact that uh, David gave me the opportunity to cut the coastal, but I, by just kind of watching their leadership, leadership styles, I have a good understanding of, frankly, what I want to use, what I don't like at all, and what I'm intentionally not going to use, or what I would, I know that they would do a better job if they did it this way, and I could do it that way. So you can learn a lot from people sometimes in terms of what they what they can, and, uh, you know, from, from, from what you think, uh, Positively and negative in terms of trying to improve what your own leadership style is. And the person I probably learned the most from was my father. So uh, his glass was always half empty. And dad took no responsibility for everything himself. And he had a food store. I grew up with that food store from the time I was 10 to the time I was 22. I worked there. And uh, he had two or three men working for him. And he used to like treat him like when he was in a bad mood, he treated everybody bad, you know, including me. So I learned so much. I love my father. But I learned so much from my father how not to lead. Treat us with dignity and respect. And, uh, uh, and to delegate, my dad, I'll do it myself. Delegate, communicate. They, they, they were things that I learned from my father because my father didn't do those. And, uh, and learning how to do those, I think, was a strength early on for me when I began coaching. Yeah, under, understanding that you can always lead, you can always learn from everyone that you're around and that you're working for. Again, whether it's good or bad, there's always things that you can take and start to mold and incorporate into your own style. Um, all right. Second to last question. I think if somebody's listening to this show, they're, they're thinking about your career and they're saying, holy hell, he's had 
so much success on the football side of things, college athletics, and on the corporate side of the world. But I know there's some failures in there. So do you have a, a favorite failure um, or an experience that didn't go like you expected that you look off back on and you said, wow, that really set me up for future success. Didn't feel good in the moment, but I look back at it now and thank God that that happened. Uh, the, um, when I was first given the responsibility for the municipal, for the municipal division and executive management of Merrill Lynch, uh, uh, I had never taken risk before because I was in the sales force. Uh, and I, I thought this particular trade makes sense where I wanted to all municipals, and I needed to hedge that to the treasury market. So there is that stamp, but I own something and I'm selling something against it and creating a hedge. Right. So I thought this was a great trade. I got permission for it and I put on a billion dollar trade. Uh, it was my daughter's last basketball game. She was playing at half and I just last best high school basketball game. And I just wanted to be there. So I rent a car, I drive up there. It's a snowstorm. I'll come back and, uh, I get a message that. What I was sold, short means I still got to go buy it, was going up, which is bad. And what I owned was going down. And up until that time, because municipals never took any risk, the biggest single loss in the history of municipals in a day was $200,000. That day, I lost $16 million. The next day, I lost another $11 billion, $27 million. The room was all over the place that, you know, well, Joe's going to get fired. Ah, he's not going to get fired. He's going to bring it back to sell. He clearly can't run those businesses. And uh, we learned what we did wrong and we learned, we learned why we did it and we corrected that. And, you know, frankly, two years later, uh, the municipal division of Merrill Lynch became per capita the most profitable division they had. That was, a, that, was a tough, that was a tough, 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 tough learning experience. What was, what was the lesson that you learned from it? I mean, what, what, what did you, what do you feel like you took away from that experience? I had that, to understand. That's crazy. Right. So all the data would show historically, I'm putting on a good trade. Our risk management team and Merrill Lynch approved it. Everybody thought it was a good trade. So what happened? Why, why did it go wrong? And we really had to analyze that. So if we analyze that, understood why it went wrong and fixed why it went wrong, could it have been a good trade? And the issue is, I, I, again, I want to get too technical. Municipals are, are negatively convexed. Treasuries are positively convexed. That means they move differently. So when interest rates go a certain way, Treasuries don't go in a way that's, that's going to be sympathetic to municipals. They, they, they're, they're much more volatile. They move much more quickly. Mortgages are also negatively convexed. So we find out we're the first company on Wall Street. We started hedging municipals with mortgages. Just doing that works. Just doing that works. Uh, and the other thing was, if you don't know exactly what you're doing, you don't have to guess where the bottom is. Have your trade and start to put it on when trade starts to work toward you. So instead of a billion, put out a hundred million, then add a hundred million, then add a hundred million. But that was the biggest thing that, that we took from that. Man. Uh, and, and I know you got technical, but it, it's good stuff. Um, all right. Uh, final question here. You've got a big giant billboard. You can put anything you want on it. Everybody's going to see it. It's your one piece of advice that you would give to someone. Uh, it's got fit on a billboard. What would that piece of advice be? Uh, it's a piece of advice to all of our listeners. For the entire time that we've been talking here, what do you think I would put on that billboard? It's going to be something related to BAM. It's going to be BAM. It's going to be BAM. So BAM's going to be the big word. And then I'm going to explain to deep debt. Standing up to feet, take responsibility for yourself, feel the respect, live the consequences of your actions. When I first got to Ameritrade, it was 2001, right at the time of 9-11. And the next year or two, 
as I traveled, I never found our country more united. The last few years, I've never found our country more divided. And why? Everybody blames everybody else. You know, one group says, well, it's not my fault. This is the way I'm handled. Or I'm not being treated fairly. The Republicans complain and uh, blame the Democrats. Democrats blame the Republicans. The conservatives blame the liberals. Liberals blame the conservatives. This group blames that group. That group blames that group. And so what's happened is you blame somebody else. So you take yourself off both. If everybody just took responsibility for themselves and within that treated others with dignity and respect, treat others the way you want to treat yourself, all of these problems we have in our country will start to go away. It's that same principle. It really does work. It really does stand up. And when you look at what's wrong with our country today, I think we're too divided. And I don't see real leaders in their particular areas stepping up and taking responsibility. How do we get this done? We can protest, but how do we get it fixed? What can I do to fix my right group, my organization, whatever it might be? Uh, and it, I think that would be helpful. That's why I put that up. Let's so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure with you and looking forward to the next conversation. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And best of luck. Congratulations on your 100th show. Thanks a lot. We'll see you guys. Hey, guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.